0: Hello, this is Brian Cam, and you are listening to Clear Story. I am recording in North London, and if I had recorded an hour ago, I would have said, sunny North London, but now it is in fact hailing, so if it picks up again, you might be able to hear that in the background. The more ardent of my listeners may have noticed that I did not record an episode last week, A few things have happened, including London opening up a little bit, but the main reason I have not published anything recently is actually that I was recording, so I have not forgotten you, dear and patient listener, but I was doing an experiment and trying to record one of Thomas Kuhn's lectures, a lecture he gave in 1973, and it's called Objectivity, Value Judgment, and Theory Choice. I'm going to release that later, so I'll talk more about that when I do. In short, it's his attempt to address the concerns that he was a relativist, which is something that he was often accused of. If you don't know who Thomas Kuhn is, I think I've mentioned him before. He is a philosopher of science. He trained as a physicist, and he wrote a really influential book in 1962 called the structure of scientific revolutions. I have been more or less obsessed with that book for the last year. So if you know me, you may be slightly tired of hearing about it. But um, nonetheless, I think it's a really, really important book. It essentially argues that paradigms in science are not a continuous and gradual series of changes, but they are instead a discontinuous series of events where A crisis occurs, a new paradigm comes about, and then a bunch of radical problem-solving and exploration happens. Then once the scientific community produces a kind of consensus, it operates under that set of beliefs and produces very rapid progress, in part because the debates about fundamental questions cease. This also involves developing a specialist language and going very deep you tend to lose contact with the rest of the world, but that's actually a feature in Thomas Kuhn's view and not a bug. But because of his focus on the importance of consensus in science, some people took him to be saying that consensus is the only thing that matters and there is no sort of objective component to science. That is very far from what he was arguing, but he takes little side jabs at this argument, but eventually he gives this lecture to explain his position, and that's the lecture that I'm trying to record from a copy of it that's available online. Now, if you have read Thomas Kuhn, you may know that his syntax is incredibly dense, kind of has this interesting word order. It sometimes reads a little bit like Lincoln or maybe even George Eliot in in the fact that it uses these things called Periodic sentences where you suspend the reader until the end to figure out what the sentence actually means. It's a really effective technique, but it's not easy either to read on the page. And I'm finding it's extremely difficult to read aloud and have it come through with all of its uh, rhetorical, oratorical power, you know? So that's what I've been working on. And that will be released on this podcast. So you don't need to do anything other than just wait for me to actually finish it. I have also gotten really interested in other questions of ideology, because as you may recall, I recorded an episode about Althusser last time, his idea of ideological state apparatuses, and the extent to which your preconceived notions affect what you find. So, in his terms, that's an ideology. The ideology blinds you to the fact that you are operating under an ideology, and at the same time, it influences everything that you see. I'm going to try and link this to the thinking of Carl Fristen, who is talking about this in terms of the individual human perception, although I always have the sense in the little that I've actually read of his. If you're familiar with him, you may know that he is absolutely brilliant, but sometimes, nigh on indecipherable in the way that he writes. And he's writing about the extent to which your predictions, or they're sometimes called priors, about the world affect your perception. So it's not the case, Friston would say, and so would Althusser, and so for that matter would Kuhn. And so I eventually intend to argue, did Nietzsche, that your perception was some kind of transparent view on the world instead there is a world out there none of these people are what are called ontological idealists and nietzsche in particular really objects to idealism full stop although i need to drill down on to why that is exactly ontological idealism being the denial that there is anything out there and just saying that everything is mind stuff That was a view of George Barclay and a few other philosophers. That is neither where Kuhn, nor Friston nor Althusser, nor Nietzsche come down, I'm going to argue. They very much do believe in the existence of nature. The nature of that nature is something that they might not agree on, but they definitely agree that there is something, quote-unquote, out there, whatever that means, rather than just being pure perceptions and... Phenomena, but nothing behind them and those things out in the world do have patterns What I would also say is that for probably all of them There is no reason that those patterns should conform to whatever schema humans come up to investigate them. So What I'm arguing is that There is a territory and the territory is of utmost importance When I say there is a territory, I'm referring to this idea that the map is not the territory. So if you imagine a city or country and you're trying to navigate, you may look at the map. Every map has a different set of trade-offs that it takes in terms of distorting the geography that it represents. But they're very useful. And not mistaking the map for the territory is critically important because what I'm trying to argue is that humans always have this temptation to fall into the view that once they've produced the map, the map is all they need. So once you create a category, like a word, and then you start referring to things with that word, you start to kind of think that that's an unambiguous identification, everyone sort of knows what you mean, and that can get you into a lot of trouble. I think you will probably have found if you've ever tried to have a discussion about something like capitalism, or maybe other political terms, or religious terms, where it takes an hour or two, but then at the end you find out that you are never actually talking about the same thing <laughs> in the first place. And so the discussion has been kind of going around in circles without you being able to meet on the same ground as it were. I think that that issue of producing a map, having the map be useful, then mistaking the map for the territory, is one that goes very deep and that all of these guys are kind of addressing in one way or another so what do i mean by that exactly so to go back to Friston's terms there is a territory you need a map you can't just look at the territory and use the territory as the map because it's too chaotic so you do have to impose some kind of order or pattern recognition on it at the moment just in the last week or two i've been thinking of it as meeting reality halfway so you come in something there are senses you definitely have some kind of bottom-up sense data coming in you also have some top-down predictions about what's going on that allow you to identify what's salient or important about the experience that you're having and those are in a kind of dynamic tension if you get too strongly predictive you will run into trouble in the sense of making wrong predictions if you let too much of the chaotic sense data in and dictate everything then you may not be able to recognize patterns at all. Or you may get false positives where you think there's a pattern, but there's actually not. So those are pretty fundamental issues. And I'm talking about it now at the level of individual perception. But of course, if you know Thomas Kuhn's work, he's writing about it at the level of science. So the whole scientific enterprise spanning all the way back in his view to at least Aristotle, probably before that. Um, and all all the way to the present day through Copernicus and Newton and Einstein. So he's talking about a similar kind of tension at the level of society, which is that when the scientific organization is working well, it has a map which all the scientists who are participating in the scientific endeavor operate under, and they don't really get to question it. They use it to suppress dissent. People who are taking different points of views about fundamental questions are relegated to departments of philosophy. Now, that does not mean that their ideas are useless, because in crisis they can become critically important. But it means that they're not part of science as it currently stands, which is using a specific map. At other times, in periods of crisis, they need to redraw the map basically, (laughs) it tends to have these moments of crisis where it needs to reconceptualize the world. Then it applies those concepts fruitfully towards the end of an investigation of nature. So to translate that back into personal terms, you may have periods of learning where you're actually kind of undoing the things that you already knew, or perhaps you're forming new concepts about the world then you'll have a period of applying those concepts. And so there may be some kind of cyclical nature to learning. At least that's the stuff that I've been thinking about in the past week or so. So this time I didn't actually read to you from any text. I just kind of thought aloud to you. I want to thank you for listening. I am going to read a random poem uh, from W.B. Yeats. I don't actually know when this one's from. Let's have a look. This is 1910. The poem is called All Things Contempt Me. All things contempt me from this craft of verse. One time it was a woman's face or worse. The seeming needs of my fool-driven land. Now nothing but comes readier to the hand than this accustomed toil. When I was young, I had not given a penny for a song. Did not the poet sing it with such airs That one believed he had a sword upstairs Yet would be now Could I but have my wish Colder and dumber And deafer than a fish I like, just like this idea that (laughs) he's in this position where anything can prevent him from writing as someone who strives to write and quite often fails I can relate to that kind of feeling So, yeah, I'm going to leave it there and I just want to thank you for listening. I would love to hear from you. I am Brian Cam at B R Y A N K A M on Twitter. You can also find me at briancam.com and hopefully within the next week I will have that Coon lecture out and you can listen to it if you are interested. I wish you all the best and you will hear from me soon, hopefully.